Hi, this is Randy Henkin. Welcome to the Blue Frontiers podcast about seasteading and soon-to-be-created sea zones. People can do almost everything better. That's why Blue Frontiers will create sustainable, peaceful seasteads based on voluntary cooperation and deploy them around the world to help communities adapt to sea level change. This is the founder series of our podcast, and it's a great pleasure that I have this guest spot to introduce my friend and colleague, Joe Quirk. Joe and I have worked together for more than six years at the Sea Study Institute, and together, along with Mark, Nick, and Igor, founded Blue Frontiers. Joe deserves credit for taking note of the many aspects of the seasteading puzzle and weaving together a coherent, compelling, and visionary narrative of how seasteading will advance humanity and support the environment of our blue planet. With great care and sophistication, Joe has conducted a wealth of interviews and research across disciplines and has become an oracle of the seasteading movement. Now here's your host, the Seavangeless, Natalie Meza Garcia. Today, I have the huge pleasure of having Sivangelis Joe Quirk, now co-founder and managing director of Blue Frontiers, but also president of the Seasteading Institute and author of the book Seasteading, How Floating Nations Will Restore the Environment, Enrich the Poor, Cure the Sick, and Liberate Humanity from Politicians. As a Sivangelis, Joe's job is to take the message of seasteading to every corner of the world. He's done hundreds of videos, interviews, talks, and podcasts about seasteading in the last years. This is why for this episode, we decided to have more of a relaxed chat between two evangelists. I hope you enjoyed this long episode brought to you especially by Blue Frontiers and thanks to the love to seasteading that both Joe and I share. I feel completely relaxed and non-pressured to talk to you. Okay, I like that a lot. I like that a lot. Yeah, I. I'm talking to a kindred spirit, and I, and I, and I could see. I knew that before we met. I, I read your papers and I watched your videos, and I realized we had very similar philosophies from the ground up and through all the details, and at the same time, you were such a different person from me. So we're very different people who arrived at very similar ideas. And I was immediately, I immediately knew. Oh. You, you would be a big part of this just from your videos and your papers. Wow. Well, that is really, really nice to say, Joe. And I wasn't, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you, actually. So thank really? you. Yeah, of course. Don't you remember? No. no. <laughs> so we were walking in Tetiaroa. Uh, we were walking in Tetiaroa, going from one moto to the other moto, and we were just chatting, and the water reached our knees, and around us there was nothing but water, and you just said, I know, Sivangeles. Oh, sure, I remember that. Yeah, I remember it very well, so I'm here because of you, so thank you very, very, very much. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful you're a part of this. No, I'm very, I'm more grateful that you made me part of it. And I want to introduce you as the guest of our podcast, the okay. Blue Frontiers podcast. Thank you very much, Joe, for being here. So for those who don't know, I'm here right now with Joe Quirk, evangelist of the Sistering Institute and also president of the Sistering Institute and co-founder and managing director of Blue Frontiers. And Joe is one of the nicest men that you'll ever meet and also 
He's written one of the most interesting and eye-opening books that someone can get their hands on. So, Joe, thank you very much and for everything and for being here. And how are you? I'm great. I've been looking forward to this all week. So hey. it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> um, I'm glad. I'm sorry for the delay. So, Joe, um, let's just have a relaxed chat. But I want to ask you, how has your experience as evangelist of the Sistering Institute been? It's, it's been like a rocket taking off, to be honest with you. Because probably about six years ago, I, I, was, I grokked this idea, as they say. I realized this, we could have variation and selection in governance itself. We could unleash um, decentralized societies and discover better solutions. And it wasn't an idea, it was a technology, and it could come very soon. And then I panicked. <laughs> this needs to happen by, you know, it's, it's something that was set up to happen in 2050. And we don't have time. It needs to happen by 2020. And, and I was literally thinking this in 2011, 2012. Um, and, and I'm an author, so I just, I, I threw myself at the Seasteading Institute and Patry Friedman saying, you got to let me write a mainstream book about this. So the, literally what I pitched was a thousand times more people need to hear about this. They need to understand why it's important. Yes, and they have. Um, because the, this, the way this is going to happen is in all the brains of brilliant people like you, for instance, who haven't heard about it yet. Right? So I, I pitched it hard. Um, and then they kind of deputized me to write the book. <laughs> Which now you have behind you. I can see it. Yes. Here yes. It is. I'm very proud of this. Yeah, you should be. It's a freaking amazing book. I have it here. So this is actually not my version. I have two versions at home, but I'm not home. This is a, the book of one of the architects of Blue 21, who are also part of Blue Frontiers, and they are designing the Floating Island project. So anyone that, anyone that saw me just pull this book away saw this in the background. So I'm going to get kind of provocative here. <laughs> I, I, really, I really thought in, in 2012 yes. that either this is going to happen or we're going backwards to this. And what is that for those who are just listening to us? That's another this, book on? This is a very heartbreaking book called Mouse by Art Stinkelman. And it's okay. um, him telling this, the story of his grandfather who survived uh, concentration camps in oh. cartoon form, right? So it, it represents, you know, a, a few decades before um, you know, Germany, one of the most civilized societies in the world, descended into this madness. Oh. They, they had a flourishing uh, Europe. They had a peaceful place. In World War I, they couldn't even get soldiers to fire at each other. They would intentionally fire <laughs> over each other's heads. But the, but the rise of monopoly nation states and big banks paid for this gigantic war that nearly destroyed civilization. And I feel like this is a cycle, and, and we go back. If we and and I, I, I don't want to get too much into the details of this, but I really think it's a desperate situation that we're on an exponential trend uh, with information technologies. Yes, we are. Rules and governance is a form of uh, of uh, information technology. It's the most important one, and it's the one that is not improving because we 
people can't experiment in a decentralized market. That is true. Uh, I thought that was just not a solvable problem until I was introduced to seasteading, right? And I realized this is a practical, realistic way of doing it because I'd already been on cruise ships and I understand the technology a little bit. So once I scored, yes, they're going to let me write the book with Patrick Friedman, yeah. I panicked again. No. <laughs> because uh. I write populist books. I write books that are fun to read. And I said, I can't write a good book about abstractions. I can't, I can't write a book that millions of people are going to read about ideas. There are lots of, <laughs> I read books about ideas, but they don't reach lots of people. And it wasn't until I went to the 2012 Seasteading Institute conference, uh -huh. and I met all the people that would, I would later call aquapreneurs, who were actually already attracted to seasteading in the early days, bringing their solutions. That's when it hit me that this is not about an idea, this is about people that are actually making it happen. I see. So I said, as a writer, I just have to step back and let them tell their stories in this book. So that's why in each of the chapters, you tell the story of someone, someone who's living on a cruise ship for years, someone who's working on algae farms. Yes. So Ricardo Radulovich and Neil yeah. Sims and all these people are coming to seasteading, saying, we could do this, we could do that. And I'm like, their, their story is the one that needs to be told. So you asked me how I'm doing, where, you know, five or six years ago, I felt like we desperately need to make this happen by reaching more smart people. And here we are now, where we have tens of thousands more people involved in every area you'd need to build a new floating society. Um, and all we need is like the business model and the, the legal C-zone, and we're, we're, we're ready to go. Yeah, that is true. Though, you know, we're, my, my, you know, my co-founders are struggling with all the details, but the big picture is this is a very exciting time for me. It's very gratifying. So there, that, that's how I answer your question. <laughs> wow. I thought you had written your book to convince your wife to move at the system. Just yeah, like you wrote a book on biology to convince her to marry you. Am I... Yes. Tidying up notes that don't exist? Uh, well, the only thing I love more than seasteading <laughs> is my wife. Okay. Um, my wife has a business here. My yes. wife has her dogs here. And by here, I mean the Bay Area, California. She has a, a beautiful house. She's got all set up. It's a beautiful Victorian. We have a beautiful garden she just completed. So she has okay. built... All, all by herself, basically, her own business, her own house, and her own garden. So how would I convince her to move to a seastead? I'd have to make the, the seastead more compelling than what she's already created here. Um, but honestly, I'm, if I was single, I think I'd move to the Floating Island Project, but I'm less interested in creating a seastead for myself than I am in unleashing the I innovation understand. out there. In sharing the message, in spreading the word which is what you've been doing. You've, uh, just this last month, you've been to Brazil, Korea, you've been in the Bay Area. You've been to a lot of events. Um, what has been what has surprised you the most in traveling is, to all these places? Yes. What has surprised me the most is um, 
the diversity of different cultures who all respond to this idea in a different way, and how rapidly and suddenly um, my interviews and public appearances have gone from hostile to enthusiastic. It like it happened within months. So the the first couple of years I was involved, invariably you're just getting beat up. You know, you're you're, you're appearing on the radio to get yelled at. <laughs> um, and then it just qu immediately switched. It, it, it um, at least in the English speaking world, it's all been very positive. <laughs> in great part, thanks to your evangelism, Joe. Oh, thank you, thank yeah. you. And we're gonna we're gonna keep it going. You're gonna keep it going. Yes. <laughs> oh, so um. You've been to Tahiti a few times now, which is where the Floating Island project is being planned at this moment to be located. What has surprised you the most about Tahiti and French Polynesia? Well, Tahiti has been uh, nothing but surprises for me. So, you know, I grew up in New Jersey. I didn't know that places like Tahiti were possible. I didn't know <laughs> I didn't know waters could be that turquoise. I didn't know there were sharks that didn't bite. I didn't know people could be that I didn't know hospitality hospitality could be taken to an art form like that. I didn't know weather could be that good. So it's interesting. There's this legend of paradise that a lot of us Westerners have in our minds, which is this beautiful place with palm trees and grass skirts. Um, and it was amazing to me to discover that it exists. And of course, it's based on a real place. Yes. Um, so it really is the most beautiful place on earth. So that alone was surprising. But when Mark Collins first reached out to us, it sort of pitched French Polynesia as the ideal place for us to get started. It seemed too good to be true. Yeah. Um, and I thought he was overselling it. <laughs> okay. You know, it, just, it, it was like too much. It's like the culture is already switching among islands. We have deep waters next to shallow waters. We have natural wave breakers. We don't have tsunamis. It's perfectly warm. We don't have high waves. You know, we, we control an area of ocean the size of Western Europe and one one-thousandth of it is land. And it's like, how, how could we not know about this? Because... We, we had gotten geographical, um, uh, we had gotten scholars to basically research the various areas where we yeah. could start. And we didn't notice French Polynesia because we just thought it was France. Oh. So we didn't investigate. And I then see. so our, t our team of 10 kind of flew in there and I, and I found out Mark Collins was underselling it and it was more amazing than I realized. And it was the first place I ever went where when I ran around and explained what seasteading was, whether I was talking to a politician or a little kid, they instantly got it. They would instantly be like, yeah, oh, sea, you know, water, floating, islands, sea level rise, autonomy, switching, choice. Okay, we get it. Sounds interesting. When do we start? Well, actually, the senator of the U.S., Jay Kalani English, looked back in the history of Polynesian culture, of the whole Polynesian Triangle, and he found that there is even a word for floating islands in the cosmology of, of Polynesians, and it's called Demokulana. 
Yeah. Is, is, is it Mokudama? So I have a fusion because I wrote the word wrongly for like three months. I was between Motulana and Mokulana. It's Mokulana, yeah, Mokulana. Yeah, so you think you're an expert on something and then you go to a place <laughs> where you find out they've been doing it for thousands of years and they already know much more about it. So when Jay Kalani English gave his speech, it was another one of these moments where like, this is too good to be true. This can't be true. So I was immediately on the internet looking up Mokulana. And it turns out I found a children's book about yeah, a Hawaiian man that is a floating island portrayed as more prosperous and peaceful and a place you want to achieve and get to. It's, it's just incredible. Like as he said. Like as he said. A place that is more peaceful, more beautiful, where you want to be. Because it's, uh, and you've, you made this comparison or you explained this very well in your book, how are sisters going to be more peaceful uh, in relation to land-based nations and the type of nation states that we have nowadays? How? For those who are not familiarized with your book, can you go a bit deep into how how is it that having floating, semi-autonomous or autonomous human uh, settlements can lead to more peaceful human societies? So I would start with the question, well, why do our land governments, why do they tend towards war, violence, confiscation, debt, bankruptcy, and eventual collapse? <laughs> uh, why aren't they uh, as peaceful as, you know, Starbucks or all the other services we want in the world? And um, I had never uh, properly identified the true problem until Patry Friedman introduced me to the idea of seasteading. And I, I t it's an economic view of the service of governance. And we know that monopolies are always bad for the consumer and always good for the people who control the monopoly. Yes. And if you have a, a monopoly on the legal initiation of violence that provides yes. the governance, exactly. that's the most important service in all of society. All social problems flow downstream from that. And that yeah. naturally arises from land where people have no choice but to live on land, where it's the source of people's labor, it's the source of wealth. It gives rise to a natural incentive structure, in my opinion, that would incline it to be controlled by conquerors who would grab vast tracts of land and then sort of lay claim over all the people in it. And so yeah. the boundaries between these things are where the conquerors met each other and fought wars and, and, and stopped. And I think because human beings are naturally tribal animals, we confuse our desire to be part of a community with our identification with a nation state because that's just how we think. It hijacks our way of thinking. Yes. But, but our nation is not actually our identity as people. I mean, you and I come from different nations and we're bonding over our shared interest in something. Yes, right? exactly. Yes, and this exactly. So communities can form however they want. Um, so to, to, when I read Patry's um, explication that monopolies on governance naturally arise where from the static nature of land, 
but if he founded civilization on water, if civilization was civilization, civilization. and land itself, <laughs> land itself could move about, yeah. and people could choose the societies they were in, it would basically be, in my opinion, impossible for a monopoly government to arise from this, because from the ground up or the water up, you'd have choice among different people. Yes. So you wouldn't have um, a static thing where people have no choice but to live and people have to conquer it. From the beginning, you would have movable land with people making choices. And in principle, this would be better than what we have now. Not in theory, but in principle. Because you'd have variation and selection in societies themselves. So things we can't imagine now would emerge and they would be improved because the thing doing the selecting would be the residents. So now the, the hard thing about selling this to people is it's kind of like, I always compare it to monarchs from Europe or monarchists demanding that Benjamin Franklin explain, well, why is Manhattan Island going to be better? Okay. <laughs> oh, that's a very good comparison. Yeah, yeah, people would say, how do you know? You you haven't been there. Yeah. It's in the future. There are no... How can you possibly know that? Yes, and, and how would it be governed? Yeah. Why, yeah. Would, why would it be wealthier than what we already have from the king? Are you not loyal to the king? <laughs> yeah. Why do you want to go yeah. do your own thing? Uh, do, what, do you think you, you just want to escape paying your, your fealty yeah, taxes yeah. to the king? What, I can't imagine something new, so why should you be allowed to try it? Yeah, that's a very good comparison, actually. Yes, and, and then this... And what's your answer? So I, 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 I'm, I can take this very far, and thanks for letting me do all the talking. <laughs> um, because I think that you're the guest. You know, whatever you think of terrible things that happened on the Western frontier in North America, yes. it was driven by people saying, screw this, I'm going to go do my own thing. And then they're creating territories out on the West and continually moving and trying something different. And they're trying all sorts of ideas that people thought were crazy. And a lot of those deals were very bad, like people shouldn't be allowed to dance. Well, those oh, ideas didn't survive. <laughs> because people didn't choose those ideas. But then other places said, you know what, the women should have complete voting rights. And people said, that's crazy. But then people moved to those places. So, if, if North America hadn't been a giant priestess, where people could try different governance models and then choose among them. We wouldn't have demonstrated, humanity wouldn't have discovered that representative democracies can work, um, that women can make political decisions and change the world. All, all these innovations that have made the free world emerged from free choice among territories in North America. And then that became a bastion of wealth 
that was able to stand up to the rise of dictatorships and uh, other kinds of nation states in the old world. And this, what was discovered in North America, spread. It spread to China. It spread to other places in the world. Now it's like considered common sense that democracy is better than dictatorship. That was not yeah. at all clear before it was demonstrated. Wow. So the so, so we yeah. still have we still have forty five percent of the Earth's surface to try other forms of governance from the bottom up, founded in the twenty first century, based on twenty first century innovations, where the where the founders of those societies know that Twitter exists and that the internet exists. You know, they're not basing their governance on the speed of a horse and quill pens. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the difference will be that there's no indigenous population to conquer and it, it's going to require uh, entrepreneurs to create better models and attract people to go there so it's going to be peaceful yes. and voluntary so yes. we have half the world's surface to experiment with voluntary societies and seasteading is the way to do it that's beautiful that's really beautiful that was actually one of the things one of the aspects that drove me to seasteading you mentioned two um, two of of the main ones. One was 21st century technologies, the internet. I, like you, I'm convinced that the internet and uh, human interactions mediated by online or on life means, because we are partly offline, partly online, there's not really a, a clear boundary. So on life, political relations and human interactions can lead to better decision-making processes. Then I realized that perhaps everything that took place online reflected mostly on offline politics and that that wasn't enough for producing really transformative changes in society. So it was then when I saw seasteading and I thought, whoa, we have here the possibility of starting pretty much from scratch, based on the idea of voluntary cooperation. Yes, we can start from the bottom <laughs> up. And, and when you're near Silicon Valley, as I am, you're, you're surrounded by all these people with wacky new ideas that you're not smart enough to know if they know. And a lot of these ideas involve governance. People propose futarchy, and, uh, you know, fluid democracy, as it's called. And then it's reduced to arguing whether it would work theoretically. Um, but if we can provide these people with actual platforms where they could go try this and demonstrate that it works better. Yes. Now we're going to discover better things. And then it, be, it gets iterated on and people come up with even better ideas. And then and this is solving the deepest social challenge in civilization, I think, which is fighting over control of governments. And of land. And many places in the world have problems regarding ownership of land and inheritance of land. And also, uh, since when it belongs to who, because I used to be here and then you came and took it away from me. So, yeah, the ocean and the fluidity of the ocean provides more, as you said, water of political relations that uh, and lacks a whole set of problems that land 
does inherently has. Yes. Wow. And again, it seems theoretical until you no. you point out that cruise ships are floating cities. They are largely self-governing, sort of de facto self-governing, because they fly the flag of Liberia or Panama. Um, and the cruise lines don't go to war with each other. No, <laughs> that sounds crazy. Yeah. It's just um, because it's so sounds crazy. To pay for the only way you yeah. can pay for a war is you have a population you can confiscate from. Yes, exactly. And and and, and sell their children's future labor into debt. Yeah. And you cannot do that in assisted because, as your book says, there's no a tax pool to take from. Right. So you have no choice but to please customers. Exactly. And compete to, to provide something better. I like that. I know that you're writing two books. Two <laughs> books. I know. And one of them is about a future with assisteds and how... Voluntary association creates new types of societies. Are you allowed to talk I, about I, your book? I, I I would be happy for to tell you the first person on <laughs> on on uh, record about yeah. these two books. I think about writing that I can't find time to write <laughs> because we're too busy trying to build an actual. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm very, very happy to be the first person on record you are telling this. So another problem I saw with explaining what Seasteads could be is that, again, it's answering uh, questions like, well, what about criminals? Well, what about war? What about, you know, child slavery? What? And... Um, Instead of, and it puts me in a polemicist uh, uh, position where I'm arguing a side against someone who disagrees with me. Yes. And my first love is fiction. Uh, I started as a novelist. And the reason I love fiction is that it gets me out of my own head and allows yeah. me to let's think through actual characters working through what they would actually face in these actual situations. Okay. Uh, and, and what I love, the best fiction to me is not good guys versus bad guys, but yes. good flawed people versus good flawed people in their different incentive structures. You know, that's part of what makes the Iliad so great, that you end up sympathizing with all the major characters on different sides. Um, so, my plan, um, I, uh, I spent uh, time brainstorming a novel with Max Borders. Um, yes. He's the, he's the former um, uh, managing editor of Fee, and he wrote a great book called Super Wealth, which is a criminally underrated book. It's really great. Um, and uh, we, I imagined, uh, a, we imagined a world in 2037 where... Um, the spiral is emerging on the ocean by itself. Yes, it's in the shape of a spiral galaxy. I love it. I love it. Uh -huh. and, um, and so there's many different things I could talk about this. So the reason it's in a spiral galaxy is that we're imagining um, a character named uh, Raymond Kurtz. 
Okay. Who founds the first, founds the first uh, seastead, uh, seastead on the ocean, on the ocean in order to sell anti-aging therapies. Oh, cool. Becomes yeah. so wealthy, he's able to pay for um, his um, seastead to be out there, be out there and, a, and, and create an economy such that people want to come out there and move there. Okay. But because people don't always get along, the people who attach to the initial central seastead maintain their distance. And so they form different, very different tribes that are branching out from the central seastead, which are forming sort of spiral arms. As the seastead spins in the garbage patch gyre, uh, and as these different tribes uh, 3D print their calcium carbonate societies yes. that move, you know, the water moving through allows you to uh, basically build seashell cities. So 3D, it's a future where 3D printing becomes cheap and lots of, the disaffected from all over the world with very many different cultures and religions attach, form different tribes and the spiral emerges over time. I love that. Meanwhile, in the future, there's a place called the United State. Singular. The United States. Yes. Okay. Which is sort of a surveillance society. Okay. That runs something called the Protecticon. <laughs> and it's a world where your uh, iPhones have evolved into contact lenses. I love it. Yes. I am, I'm so waiting for that. Yes. So yeah. everybody has uh, one, one of their lenses. They have a contact lens on it. And it allows them to have augmented reality. So as I'm talking to you, I get to scroll through as we're talking and look at your most embarrassing moment that was caught yeah. on one of the women, you know. So it's a it's a hyper um, a very high surveillance society. Yeah. Um, and meanwhile, this world has been emerging out on the Pacific Ocean that there's nobody in control of it. It's just happening. Uh, so maybe I'm explaining this too long, but uh, so. A young uh, biotech researcher thinks that she's discovered the cure for aging. Yes. She learns that in the United States, it's going to take 20 years and $10 billion to bring it through the hyper-protective regulatory process. Okay. <laughs> so she flees to the scary spiral where lots of medical mavericks sell questionable therapies to people who migrate there so that she can find uh, Raymond Kurtz and bring her cure to the world, which she, with hundreds of millions of lives at stake. So that was a long drawn out way of, so the, 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 the people, so I have a woman who wants to do a good thing and maybe a controversial thing in the United States really is, and she can't make it happen. So she goes to the spiral where she confronts all these fears, which is there's refugees, there's people displaced from war uh, in Asia that come up um, that are poor and are unclaimed and are stateless. There's uh, pirates that kidnap children and force them to work on uh, fishing ships. There's... Um, non-state uh, regulatory bodies that are emerging. Um, there's uh, 
policing with different arms of the spiral and how they have to interact with each other. There's religious fanatics. There's everything you would fear. There's also um, the, it's the early days of emergent order. So there's really questionable scientific people offering quack remedies to people okay. that could be dangerous. So she has to cope with all these things that we're afraid of about seasteading. Meanwhile, there's a person chasing after her, and he's a, a, a gentleman who works for the Health Oversight Board, who uh, is a fraternal twin, whose twin brother is severely mentally retarded because his mother, while they were in the womb, took one of the spirals therapies, and it affected his twin brother. So he has a guilt complex, yes. and he wants to make sure this never happens again. Wow. So he is chasing this woman to prevent more medical disasters from happening because he believes the United States is a good thing and the spiral is anarchy. So he is, he is dealing with his set of incentives inside a governance monopoly and she is dealing with her set of incentives in a completely um, anarchic world. Um, and then you're able to, so they're in conflict. And then so you're able to walk them through, like, well, what happens when you, what happens if the religious fanatics have their own arm of the spiral? Um, what happens if there are, you know, uh, roving gangs of, of pirates? What happens with refugees? How do you handle immigration? Is this bad or is it good? Um, how does it work out? You, you, you're gonna, so instead of, um, you're, um, you're forcing the, the, the reader, rather than winning an argument, you're bringing them through an emotional experience of what it's like, where even the protagonist involved has doubts. And the guy chasing after her has good intentions, but also has doubts about the system from where he comes. And then he works with his incentives. Um, so just to tell you what the MacGuffin is, um, there's basically a, a child uh, who's displaced from a war-ravaged land who, um, so surrounding the spiral is a, is a, a lot of plastic trash. Okay. And there are huge numbers of uh, refugees who have basically made floating islands out of the trash. Okay. Uh, born among these people is a young boy with a disease I invent called digeria. Digeria. Yeah, which is uh, early onset aging. Oh, wow. <laughs> So he's, you know, seven years old and he's basically rejected by his tribe as cursed. And, oh. he, and he kind of washes up uh, on the spiral um, where this woman, um, seeing he's about to die, injects him with her therapy uh, just before he's kidnapped by uh, child slaver pirates and... Um, the Health Oversight Board raids the spiral and destroys her scientific data. Oh, oh, I, I know cases of that. Right. So then the boy on the pirate ship um, ages backwards and becomes a beautiful boy again. Oh. Freaks out the pirates, is thrown overboard. <laughs> where he is eventually reunited with the woman who recognizes the, the tattoo on his forehead which identifies him as Curse and realizes it's the same boy and he's the only copy of her cure is in his DNA. DNA. 
So then it's a race against time to get him to the central, uh, uh, the center of the spiral to meet Raymond Kurtz and draw the cure out of his bones <laughs> uh, and wow. share with the world before it degrades in two weeks and he dies. Oh, <laughs> did he die? Well, you'll have to wait and see. He, she has basically <laughs> two weeks and she has to cross every arm of the spiral and go through this hero's journey. Oh. Um, meeting all these different cultures and struggling within each while trying to protect this child with limited time. Um, and since she pursued a scientific career, she never had children. So there's that all going on with this sort of <laughs> child she adopts. And the boy is a, is a rejected orphan, so he's never had a mother. So there's a whole complex thing going on. Meanwhile, a well-meaning head of the Health Oversight Board is in heart pursuit. Wow, that sounds extremely cool. I would like to say it's a shame that you are too focused on building a floating island. Assist it right now because I want to read your book. Can you do both? Uh, I, I just don't know. Um, I, I, it's, it's all in my head. Um, so this has happened before. I, I wrote a novel in college and then I went to law school and I wasn't able to focus on law school because a novel kept growing in my head by itself. Wow. And that, and I had to leave law school and write it. And that may be happening again because I'm focused on the Floating Island Project, but this, this story just keeps happening in my head. But uh, if you, I can tell you about my other book. Yes, please. Right. Do so. So maybe it's a very corny title. Okay. Uh, what the, is it the working about? title is Aquarchy. Aquarchy. I like that title. So um, through yeah. all my studies into seasteading and, yes. uh, and emergent law on the oceans, I, I, f I feel like I've discovered that um, the world that Patry Friedman's dad writes about in The Machinery of Freedom of uh, decentralized uh, providers of law, uh, free market competing regulatory societies, uh, yeah. free market competing seafood, ship safety is already has been emerging on the oceans for centuries actually and um, is well into its golden age and that the decentralized world they propose could work theoretically is already flourishing on the oceans oh. and nobody talks about it including people who work on the oceans because it's just taken for granted. I understand. You mentioned something similar when you say in your book that nobody mentions UNCLOS. Nobody mentions UNCLOS. UNCLOS. Yeah, uh, it's, you know, I, I, I'm not good with acronyms, but yeah, the laws of the... When things work well, you don't... Yeah, you don't perceive them, exactly. And you don't argue about it. Yeah. Oh, okay. I could give you so many concrete examples. Yes, please. I think one of my favorite is um, ship salvors. Ship salvors? What are ship salvors? So you're, you, here's, you have your gigantic cruise ship. It's, it's yeah. going from China to the U.S. It's in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Hundreds of miles from any country. Yes. Um, 
in the middle of nowhere among the other 100,000 ships that are on the oceans. Yes. You have $100 million worth of cargo on, on board. And you have a crew guiding this thing. You are many, many miles from the Coast Guard. You're many, many miles from any Navy. Your engine catches fire. Oh. It blows up. Yeah. Your ship is on fire. You have people on board, and it's in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And, it, and, and you're stranded. <laughs> you can't move, and you might sink, and it all might burn. Oh, my cosmos. That's not good. Uh-huh. And... and, and <laughs> How can this, how can this, um, the greatest, 90% of all international trade moves across these vast oceans on ships. It's not across bordering neighbors, it's on ships. There's a huge ocean economy in operation keeping you and I wealthy that nobody is in control of. Yes. And things like this happen all the time. And you're a thousand miles from the Coast Guard. Are they going to rush out and save you? You don't have time. So what happens? Um, how do you get insurance for a hundred million dollars, literally, of cargo that's all going to sink? How do you get insurance for your employees who are in danger of dying? Who's going to rescue them? Who's going to fix the engine? Yes. Well, the ocean is crawling with private, free market salvors who are out there to, to save imperiled ships and make vast profits doing this. Oh. So when the SOS goes out, these guys start racing to be the first oh. one, <laughs> to be the first one to get to the ship um, oh. and get a line on the ship. And there's a rule that if I'm the first one to get a line on the ship, I now am in charge of rescuing this ship. Wow, so the rest step Away, they don't do it. They, they just don't do it. They they stand back and wait for the first guy to say, "I'm not handling this. I need more help." And then other people can come in. So the question becomes, why are they doing this? That's amazing. What is the incentive? The the um, the incentive is, in antiquity, it was decided that if you uh, rescue an imperiled ship, and the ship owner can't pay the cost of saving the ship you get to claim a certain percentage of the ship. Okay. Well, how is this decided ahead of time? Um, you're, you're a ship owner, your ship catches fire, you're in big trouble, you need people to be saved, you need your capital to be saved. There's people you don't know who are racing to save your ship. There is a one-page contract online that you can download that two-thirds of the Earth's surface has decided upon is the agreement, right? So you already know as the ship owner getting a call from your ship or in trouble that whoever you're not even talking to that's going to save your ship is agreeing to certain rules because they like download it, they sign it, and you agree to it, and boom. And it's, it's the same rules everywhere. It's not a 50-page state contract. It's a one-page thing that you and I could read, that anyone could agree on. So it happens spontaneously. And then, so then there are more questions. So say, and on the top of this contract, it's, it basically says, uh, if you don't save the ship, you get paid nothing. Okay. 
So if you get a line on the ship, if you put out the fire, um, if you lose, if you spend a million dollars trying to save this ship and some of your crew get killed, if you don't tow the ship to safety, you get nothing. So there's incentive for doing good your job. If there's an incentive for you to do the best job you can do. Yes. It's not relying on your goodwill, it's relying on your desire for profit. Okay. And all the other salvers are not getting in and starting fights over who gets to control the ship. There's a process that has evolved over time for how ships are saved. Wow. So then you get a line on the ship, you put out the fire, you um, repair the engine, or you tow the ship to safety at great, great personal risk and at huge expense. Mm -hmm. Yes. You spend millions of dollars to do this, and it takes a week. Wow. Then you get the ship safely to port, and the ship owner says, uh, that was worth $100 million, and I don't have $10 million to pay you. So then the ship, then the salver says, okay, well, I get to claim possession of 10% uh, of the ship. Okay. In 75% of cases, the ship owner and the salver agree on the percentage that they get, right? Without any dispute, because the rules have evolved over time of, of how this works. But often, in 25% of times, there's a dispute. Okay. Where the salver says, okay, given what I did, I get 15% of your ship. And then the ship owner says, no, you get 10%. <laughs> okay. They then take their dispute to Lloyd's Arbitrators. Okay. Which is evolved out of antiquity, which is a dispute resolution court system that requires that you have no lawyers. Wow. That requires that um, you have no pre-existing contract. Uh, between so, the parts. Right. So if well, you already brought a, a contract to be enforced by governments ahead of time, they're not going to listen to your case. Because you've already made it complicated and expensive, and that's not what yeah. they do. That's cool. Their, their thing is to... So then they look, at, they look at the level of the risk that was involved. They look at the level of the expense. They you know, get witnesses and where people testify and everything's recorded about uh, how imperiled was the ship, how much risk did you take on, what bad decisions did you make, did you make a bad decision and not calling someone else to help you. Oh. And then they'll say, the ship owner, uh, the salver's wrong, he doesn't get 15%. He gets 10%, the ship owner is correct. Okay. Right? Yes. So now, they just issued a decision, and Lloyd's Arbitrators has no enforcement mechanism whatsoever. Awesome. This is getting better. Uh-huh. You're, you're getting this, because... Yeah, of course. I, yeah. If I explain this to other people, they don't get how significant this is. No, no, it's huge. It's about peaceful, peaceful cooperation, peaceful agreements, just voluntarism. Yes, and people's fundamental selfishness leads them towards doing the right thing in a decentralized marketplace of services. Which has been proven in several occasions to be a, a way to achieve optimal order when it comes to self-organized societies. Right. And you are free. Like, say the um, Lloyds hears the case and says, no, the ship owner is wrong. 
Okay. Uh, not, not only does he get 15%, he gets 20% of your ship if you're not able to pay. <laughs> the ship owner is completely just free to say, screw you, I'm not giving him anything. And I'm defying Lyde's decision. And I'm just going to continue to do business on the sea and pay the sovereign yeah. nothing. Well, then Lloyd simply publishes the decision. Okay. And now everybody in the industry knows that Don't you're the type of person. Yeah. Because Lloyd's has so much respect. Wow. So everybody wants the, the business to keep moving. So I'll take a loss on this decision I think is bullshit so I can continue to do business with these people. And next time I have an accident, they'll save me. And hopefully we'll come to an agreement based on this precedent. But if we don't, we can go back to Lloyd's and I'll argue my case. What everybody wants is the disputes to be resolved quickly and to get back to business. The other thing that's interesting is you're also free to overrule Lloyd's and say, actually, I'm flagged in the, the UK and I'm going to take my case um, to the British court. And what's interesting is that most courts, because they have so much backlog, have a general principle of we don't overrule these private decisions by Lloyd's. Wow. So since people already know they don't have an appeal in the yeah. state courts, they just don't do it. That's awesome. So th these stories go on and on and on. Like, why are ships safe? Uh, why don't you just get on a cruise ship and it's dangerous and you fall overboard? And Because there's like 50 ship certification societies yes. competing for the makers of ships to choose them to oversee their construction process. Okay. And they seek the best, fairest ones with the best record, and they pay them. Come watch us make our ship and inspect everything, and we want your stamp of approval. And then they're free to say, like, okay, we want the house built at your dock. We want our guys to be stationed there for a month. And, and then everybody complies because getting the stamp of approval from a respected ship certification society is so valuable that, that the shipbuilders will make the sacrifice. And again, this is a completely free market, no states are in control situation. Yeah, you know what I was thinking when, in the, when you were saying the last bit about reputation mechanisms and how reputation yes. mechanisms can give legitimacy to decisions that are not, yeah, that don't have any state involved. Right. And they're gonna and, uh, be huge insisted in the future, very important. Yes, I, uh, in between um, pitching the seasteading book uh, proposal and scoring a large advance for the book, I had to take a job while I was waiting for the book to sell. Um, just being a salesman in a, in a store and um, the boss and the owner of the business was one of the nastiest, cruelest people I've ever met. He was a bitter, bitter guy. And every customer that left, he would curse out after they left. That's but he, in the marketplace, when people were in his place, he was the nicest, most serviceable, working hardest to please them person I've ever seen. <laughs> and so he was a pretty nasty guy who in the marketplace, his selfish incentives inclined him to be serviceable. 
So an open market where you profit by serving other people inclines bad people to behave well. Yes. And a monopoly of governance in which the worst people get to the top inclines good people to behave corruptly. Yeah, mostly because there are no very high incentives for doing the opposite. Because once you're in the loop, you're in the loop. And it's really hard to permeate it. So that's the other book I want to write. Yeah, I love it. (laughs) Aquarchy. 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 People people have told me it's really awkward and it doesn't work. Well, it brings... It's very similar to your last name, and I think it does work. A quirky. Yeah, a quirky. It's like your land. No, your land. No, your seasted. Quirks seasted. Yeah, it's like uh, rule by water. Um, a. A quirky. Actually, the prefix a in Latin means mm-mm. not. Yeah, so. There's no rule on the water. <laughs> At least tacit ones, tacit ones. There are tacit ones, like what you just explained. Yes, that's why I don't want to call it a quirky, because it'll be not quirky, and I think it will. <laughs> it needs to be quirky. Yes. Yeah, like the jacket. Look, I'm wearing this jacket because of you, Joe. For you, and it's a carnival jacket because. Right now, we are in carnivals everywhere in the world. Did you know that? I'm not celebrating the carnival because I'm in the Netherlands and it's like one degree and I'm indoors. (laughs) But a lot of people in Brazil, in Colombia, even here in the Netherlands, Mardi Gras, I think, also is taking place, well, took place last weekend, but there's still people celebrating. Uh, there are huge celebrations that are closely related to seasteading, and you've oh, been, yeah. yeah, but not now. You've been to Burning Man. Yes. Yeah, there's a lot of people with cool clothes like this one. Yes. Yes, and and and. Which, by the way, I'm here inside is not one degree. It's like. So you intuitively just raised a bunch of references there uh, as to why a Burning Man is a, is a precedent for seasteading. Um, here, look, I, I wore this shirt in honor of you. And if, and if you, I love the, the documentary we made where you pose underwater with this shirt and point to it. Uh, it says, stop arguing, start seasteading. Yes. So... If I yeah. take away the cruise ship, that is the. If I take away the water on the cruise ship, that is the symbol of Burning Man. Indeed. And then if I do that, it's the symbol of seasteading. And then yes. If I just do the middle part. It's the symbol of Blue Frontiers. Yes. And if I do this and make five of those, and they're not floating on water but on a canoe, it's yes. the French Polynesian flag. <laughs> and That's it. Really, really nice. Um, people like to make fun of Burning Man, but the California seasitters take it very seriously. First of all, it's where I met Patry Friedman and where I first um, grokked the idea of seasteading when he told me about it. And I wouldn't okay. have understood why it was possible if I hadn't already attended Burning Man ten times. Oh, wow. So, uh, I love New Orleans. Yes. I wanted to attend Mardi Gras. 
Yes. And I attended Mardi Gras after I'd gone there on a non-holiday to see jazz and everything like that. But uh, okay. I, I don't want to upset anybody, but I didn't enjoy Mardi Gras. Oh, why? Because I felt um, it uh, attracted people who don't align with my values. Uh, I understand. Um, the people who uh -huh. polluted a lot, people who yeah. got drunk and got in fights, and people who harassed women, right? Yeah. So you set up something awesome, and the jerks come out of the woodwork to come yeah. there and party. So then I had to ask myself, why doesn't Burning Man turn into Mardi, uh, Mardi Gras? Yeah, why doesn't Burning Man turn into Mardi Gras? Why don't the jerks ruin it? Exactly. And they don't. Uh, they don't. And why... Um, and they don't. And given that it's literally a gift economy, why doesn't it get overrun with parasites who just show up to take advantage? You could go to Burning Man and not contribute anything and just go from camp to camp, eat their food, drink their booze. You know, you could harass women and run away and get away with it probably. Yeah. So why doesn't it descend into Mardi Gras? Why? That's a very good question. Why do you think that is? It, it has an immigration policy that naturally emerges. Okay. It's in the middle of nowhere. Yes. Um, it requires a large amount of suffering to get out there and struggle. Yeah. It's in the middle of a desert. You have to bring your own water. You have to bring your own food. Um, you have to travel through dust. Uh, and it's the type of place where people want to work for months to go out in the middle of a desert, a lifeless desert with no bugs, no plants, no nothing, where there's sandstorms and intense heat and intense cold, and build a giant work of art that you don't sign or get credit for, uh -huh. and likely burn it. And it burns. Yeah, exactly. For free. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, that's a certain type of person with a certain type of value system willing yes. to suffer to do this. Uh, you also have to have tickets to go, so it's sort of a private little city. Yeah. You have to pay for entrance. The type of people that just want to get drunk and harass women and throw up and throw trash in the desert, it's not worth the effort because they can yeah. go do that at Mardi Gras. Yeah, they can do that somewhere else. They do that somewhere else. You're yes. right. So a temporary economy I wouldn't have thought was possible and a type of culture I, didn't, I couldn't have imagined I watched emerge over the 14 times I went to Burning Man. Wow. Um, so, anyone who goes to Burning Man that many times and watches it grow from 20,000 people to 70,000 people as I did, and watches it maintain a culture over 15 or 16 years, and watches rules emerge such that there are Problems that emerged in Burning Man's evolution that seemed like death to the project, like ravers show up and play loud music and keep everyone awake and ruin Burning Man for everyone. Okay. Well, they people established 
voluntary emergent rules for if you want the noise camp, you go there. You want the quiet camp, you go there. There was a huge problem where the porta potties, then there became like, what do you do with poop? People are pooping. Yeah. Then they had to hire a porta potty service. <laughs> they, they, they brought in porta potty potties and people started uh, throwing their trash into the porta potty. Oh, yeah, I would imagine. Yeah, those things usually end up really dirty after a celebration. Yeah. So the company that was, private company that was doing this was cleaning out the porta potties and their trucks would get, their vacuum things would get trash caught in it and it would break their trucks. And they said, uh, we're not providing the service anymore unless you guys solve that problem. And it became, how do you control 30,000 people? So Burning Man went on this campaign to, at the gates, tell everyone we're not going to get to do Burning Man if we don't respect the porty potty guys. You have to not throw trash in. We have to pay them for more porta potty, you know. And then that problem was solved. So most of these solutions, you don't even know how they're solved. All you know is they're being solved from the ground up with basically no top-down enforcement. Yes, like they would be on a seastead. Like on a seastead. Yeah. So someone like me, when you go repeatedly and watch it evolve, invariably you start thinking, what if we had more societies set up on blank slates? Because uh -huh. um, it's literally, there's no resources, there's no water, there's no nothing. It's completely flat, barren moonscape. And people, <laughs> people, people created this thing you wouldn't think was possible. Uh -huh. uh, people interact in ways you wouldn't think was possible. I, I wouldn't have thought this could ever work, but it does work. Um, what if you did it all year round? What if you had hundreds all over the world attracting different types of people? Wouldn't it be interesting what yes. different ways we could discover? Yes. Definitely. So I was thinking about that. And, and I wasn't the only one. Other people who went to Burning Man would say things like this. Like, how do we take this out into the world? Wouldn't it be interesting if we had more Burning Mans? Um, so I, um, I was at... So a few years later, I was on a cruise ship. Um, and I was immediately compelled by the fact that um, it was the highest standard of living I ever had, that it was cheaper per night than the, host the hotel I was in in Alaska the night before. <laughs> there was ice sculptures and all the gourmet food I wanted and all the entertainment I wanted and ballet dancers came to dance and it was a floating city. Yes. And um, people working there were uh, from like Southeast Asia um, and they provided excellent service and excellent food. And it was almost like I had a personal butler named Prawit, um, who was very gracious and seemed to share my sense that this was an exciting adventure. So I, instead of enjoying myself, was walking around the ship, literally trying to do back of the napkin calculations because I was like this thing must be napkin calculations <laughs> okay it's like this thing must be worth way more than a billion dollars so uh -huh. if there's this many people paying how many cruises do they do a year and then uh, there's I think there's more people working on it than there are passengers <laughs> like how do the economics of this work yes. um, and why Am I so much more prosperous on a cruise ship? 
<laughs> why am I living like a wealthy person with a with a butler? And why are the uh, people from poor countries living like middle class working like like working class people in the United States? You know, they're getting tips. They're 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 eating good food. They're and they're and they're they seem excited about it. Nothing forced. Yeah. And I, I couldn't figure it out. Uh, the only thing I could think, like, it, there must be a tax thing. It must be cheaper taxes. And I, and I didn't know what the answer was. But what I definitely saw was, wow, you could have something the size of a mall floating around in the ocean yes. going to Alaska. Um, and it, water slides, every amenity I could possibly want was within walking distance of my cabin. So six weeks later... I was at my 10th Burning Man. Oh, okay. Somebody introduced me to Patry Friedman and said, you'd probably be interested in seasteading. I'd never uh -huh. heard of it. I, d I didn't know how to pronounce seasteading. <laughs> and and Patry explained in a very short period of time that he runs a nonprofit that wants to create floating cities on the sea. Yes. And because I'd just been on a cruise ship, I immediately said, oh, I can see why that's technically possible. I can see that humanity would move in that direction. I find it really odd that anyone would create a nonprofit to, to encourage it to happen sooner than otherwise. I don't see what the point is. Okay, Yes. And then I went home and noticed that the Burning Man logo was based. <laughs> uh, the seasteading logo looked like the Burning Man logo. Uh huh. And that made me very curious. Because, like, what does floating cities on the ocean have to do with an ocean in the desert? And um, I didn't remember his name. It was like Patrick Freisman. <laughs> so I started Googling, and then I found his blog. And he, okay. was the, he was the one who articulated this vision that I described before, that the oceans aren't claimed by any state. Uh, you can set up your own governance rules if you were to have a f permanent floating island out there. And you would have variation and selection among societies and you would unleash progress in the most important industry in the world. Yes, governance. And then I just, that changed my life. I became a fanatic. I started pitching myself that I, we should, I'll, we should co-write a book together and get it out on a mainstream publisher. And it wasn't until after we agreed to do that, many, many months later, I discovered he was the grandson of Milton Friedman and the son of David Friedman. I didn't even know that. And then that became an irresistible leg legacy because Patry Friedman is kind of yeah. proposing a technology that would be a practical application of his grandfather's and his father's ideas. Exactly. And when you were describing how Lyots, Lyots, Lyots resolves disputes, it Lloyd, sounded yeah. Lloyds, sorry, it sounded just like that. Yes. Yeah. Private courts, private dispute resolution systems. It yes, is that. It doesn't sound. That's what it is. And right. it's on and the Lloyd, ocean. And because Lloyd's isn't a monopoly, they don't have variation with no selection. They don't have an incentive to proliferate billions of laws that all contradict each other. They don't have an incentive to like, well, we'll take two years or ten years to resolve this dispute. Yeah. They don't need specialists to learn all the complexities of this and be polemicists for different people's sides and use yes. 
archaic language that only they understand in order to argue about a simple dispute. Yes. They're like, the, the disputants come in, make your case in front of a court with a market incentive to resolve this as quickly and fairly as possible and keep it as simple as possible so that you guys pay us to resolve your dispute. And it works way better. I like that a lot. How do you see that extending in the future uh, in the context of seasteading? Let's say that you are here in your seasted cluster and I'm here in mine and we have a dispute, let's say, I don't know which kind of dispute I can have with you or anybody can have with you, Joe. But let's say we have any dispute to resolve. How would the case of... Um, Lloyd's? Lloyd's. Lloyd's, Lloyd's. Lloyd's like the bank. Yeah. Okay, how would the case of Lloyd be extended to our systems? So, if it would indeed be Lloyd's, which I think, <laughs> I, I think the early seasteads, so I'm moving my seastead because uh, I don't want to live with your seastead because I have my own ideas, and while I'm moving it, I kind of you fender vendor like yours. Clothing choices. Yeah, say yours is painted that color, and I scrape my seastead up against it. Okay. And rub off your paint job. No. <laughs> And I say, oh, sorry, I'll pay for your paint job. And you say, no, I paid an artist to make this beautiful. I'm not, we're not just going to pay it. And I say, no way. I'm just going to put a patch on that thing, on your sea stone color. <laughs> right? So uh -huh. we, don't agree, we don't agree on what I should pay you that I crashed into your sea stone as I was walking, leaving in a huff. Okay. So I think in the early stages, I wouldn't be surprised if it is Lloyd's because it will be a natural... Um, like incremental step oh. that that they would also listen to disputes among seasteaders. That's so cool. But it wouldn't stay that way because yeah. as seasteads became more sophisticated, as people got more pissed off uh, at Lloyd's decisions because they don't have experience with seasteads, when people want something, entre entrepreneurs find ways to profit by providing it. Yeah. So I think you would have emergent dispute resolution organizations coming from the first 10 or 20 or 50 seasteads. Um, yeah. The same way informal ones have emerged at ephemeral on the Sacramento Delta. Yes, 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 please talk about them. I have heard some really interesting things about dispute resolutions. Yes, so yeah. Ephemeral is called Burning Man on the Water. It was uh, founded by Patry Friedman and the Seasteading Institute in 2009, which is sort of like a floating festival where you have to bring your own land. And the idea was we learn how to get along on the water and solve problems, and as we get better and better, we slowly move out down the delta and eventually out onto the sea. You know, oh. idealistic vision. Now... It's been fascinating. Ephemeral has grown. Ephemeral has expanded. Um, people who know nothing about seasteading have gotten involved because they become compelled by this alternative society they can create temporarily that floats. Yes. And it's been very interesting to watch it follow the same evolution as Burning Man. 
because what they're dealing with now as they approach their 10th year is what Burning Man had to deal with as they approach their 10th year, which oh. is what do you do about people that, you know, a 22-year-old who brings their giant dance party and all night plays a loud music and old people like me want to go to sleep <laughs> and somebody is ruining ephemeral for everybody. Okay. So... What do you do? Do you call in the government to enforce a law? No, that's not going to work. Yeah. Uh, the, the ephemeral community is dealing with this from the bottom up. On social media, uh, they're agreeing on rules. They're agreeing on how many islands should there be, how connected should they be. I didn't want to go to ephemeral because I'm getting too old. And my, <laughs> my fellow oldster, uh, Christine Peterson... Uh, saw me at Patry Friedman's wedding last night and said, you know what? We're creating Quiet Island. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, really? There is Quiet Island. Maybe I will go this year. <laughs> because a sort of um, middle-aged person like me with their own values has entrepreneurially trying to create a situation where they want to create Quiet Island. How are they going to do that? I don't know. I don't need, need to argue about the details. All I know is an entrepreneur I trust, Christine Peterson, is doing it and leading it. That alone makes me say, okay, maybe I'll come to Ephemerile if I can be on Quiet Island. Um, and I don't know how she's going to get away from the ravers. I don't know how that's going to be worked out. But the success of Ephemerile uh, is measured by the the number of people who have heard of seasteading. Yes, and it's growing and growing and growing. This year, uh, 500 people are expected. And it 500 started people. 500 people, yeah, and it started really small. And it's not uh, whether 100% of them have heard of seasteading. It's the real success is when 5% of them have heard of seasteading. So... It was founded in 2009 by people that are like seasteading ideologues. Then it became really cool, really fun, really interesting, a real experiment in socially getting along. And it attracted a whole new generation of people. So when I showed up at Ephemerile two years ago, and I went around introducing people, people would be like, well, who are you? And I'd be incredulous. I'd say, you're I'm the joking. evangelist of the Seasteading Institute, yeah. I swear to God, Natalie, half the people would say, see, what the hell is that? Yeah. That, that's success. Oh, because they don't notice what they are doing and they are? Yeah, they're not doing it because they're an early adopter ideologue. They're doing it because it's better. It's a better way to spend that week than another way they would spend that week. Because, and that's what I want seasteads to be. I'm not a seasteader, I just want a better job. Yeah, <laughs> you can't have a better job. Yeah, or, or say I, I work in a hotel in French Polynesia and, I, and they offer me a better deal on the seastead. Okay. I, I can go to the Floating Island Project and get a better deal. When people, are, when, when people who aren't seasteaders are choosing it because it's better than what they could have otherwise, that's when we're succeeding. Oh, I see. And that's yes. already happening with ephemeral. And, okay, just tell me that by the end of your week, everybody knew who you were. No. <laughs> I just wasn't significant. Okay. 
I just wasn't sick. I just didn't matter. I swear to God. Uh, it was like a younger generation has taken over ephemeral. They're doing their own thing. They're building their own islands. They're coming up with their own innovations. It doesn't need me at all. Um, they have talks. People talk about ideas. People rent barges. People figure out the rules. They figure out how to deal with the Coast Guard. They, they find ways to make it safer. It's all just happening. It, and, they, and it doesn't even need to call itself seasteading. I'm really looking forward to the time where it's already out there and it's not just a few examples that we have, but it's spread everywhere. We yes. will be able to see it. And, and, and can I tell you one more anecdote? Yes, please. Ephemeral uh, hasn't just attracted people that don't know about seasteading. It attracts people that thought seasteading was BS and didn't like it. So um, Big Think a while ago kind of wrote a hit piece about seasteading or a, yes. a very unfair article that I didn't like. Oh, really? It was many years ago, back when we weren't popular. Okay. But then I go to Ephemeral and I meet a guy and he's the founder of Big Think. <laughs> okay. And I'm like, wait a second, what are you doing here? And then he finds out I'm from seasteading and yeah. immediately is like, you have to come on our show and talk about oh. seasteading. And I'm like, I happen to know you didn't <laughs> like us a few years ago, and now you're at Ephemeral. Obviously, once you have a concrete example of early stage seasteading, now you're into it. Yeah, that's quite cool. And what, what did he say? I said, I don't trust that you're uh, <laughs> not going to film me and edit me in a bad way. So um, Mark Collins is much better in this kind of circumstance because he's speaking about it from a Polynesian perspective. So when he went uh, to New York to speak at the UN, afterwards he went to Big Think and then he talked about seasteading from his perspective as a Polynesian who also understands Americans. And it's yes. one of the most shared uh, videos we've ever had and so it's another one of these places that seemed like they didn't like seasteading and now they're supportive of it and they've come out with like two videos featuring Mark Collins yes and the second one is longer and they are both really beautiful they're beautiful they are so touching and he might have been converted because he saw a practical application <laughs> that said hey maybe there is something to this I like that I like that. That's why it's really meaningful. I find that it's very meaningful what we are doing. Yes. We get to uh, stop fighting and start uh, demonstrating. Exactly. This, I think it was August, at the Start of Societies Foundation Summit, there, the logo was also very similar. It was, don't argue, build. And that's right. what we are doing. And seasteading has a brother or sister movement called the, well, either the Charter Cities Movement or the Start of Societies Movement, and they are also trying to do the same. Just don't argue. We don't have time for arguing. We are tired of arguing. Arguing is not good. Let's just build. Yes. And I, and I think of uh, seasteading as kind of a a subset of that movement that we all see the same thing if we could just create startup societies because 
especially if you're in Silicon Valley, that's the source of solutions. Yeah, if we can just create them, exactly. Let's just create. And you had a, in your podcast, he's studying today, Oliver Porter. Yes. Who created a privately run town. Yes. Sandy Springs. And he's doing perfectly. Yes. It's... um. So when you find the concrete example of what's possible, it's so good, it seems too good to be true. Yeah. Um, so Oliver Porter was a, just a regular guy with no experience in government who basically yeah. found himself entrepreneurially inheriting Sandy Springs, Georgia, um, where he was in the position to just write the charter with no mm -hmm. budget for how this town is going to run. Uh, uh, so, you know, he had like no tax money, nothing. Uh, so he just started off the cuff, blank slate, figuring it out. He wrote it out, the charter out on yellow paper in his basement, and then right. started finding every possible private uh, service he could think of to do things like build roads, set up parks, provide this, provide that. And it became so successful that the model has been copied um, by numerous other small town jurisdictions. Um, and it's even been imitated in Japan. Wow. So then it becomes like, so this is just, it's a random set of capricious circumstances that put this gentleman in the position of being able to rethink his own town where he has to use private services. And it's spectacularly successful at every level that you yes. can, you, we can get it, you can get into more detail if you listen to, if you just look up Oliver Porter or listen to our podcast. Um, but then the question becomes, so wait, you just get one little startup society on land and it's that successful in the middle of nowhere? Um, what if you had thousands of them? How many Oliver Porters are there out there? And I was completely surprised when we had our Tahitian seasteading gathering in, in French Polynesia, and there's Oliver Porter. He showed up. Well, you didn't know he was going to be there? I, I didn't know. Maybe my my colleagues knew, but I was completely surprised. Oh. I was like, holy cow. Oh, I thought you knew. I, I didn't. And then at one point we had like uh, a pause in the conference. Yes. And then he came up with me to me and he's like, uh... If you guys need five minutes, I can get up there right now and, and pitch the Sandy Springs idea. <laughs> nice. Uh, so he didn't get to do that, but he was, he was ready to at any moment to get up on stage and talk about why Sandy Springs works. Nice. Um, oh. But yeah, he's, he's, uh, he's such a good storyteller. Yeah, he is. He was telling me the story of how he replicated an Angelina Jolie film in Venice. I don't remember the name when he was with his wife and they were in the gondos and then they went to the same hotel and Angelina Jolie was in the film. It was, he's a really good storyteller. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, I thought you knew. I don't know how, uh, I'm going to try to say this in the easiest way possible now that you mentioned Sandy Springs. So the, before this talk, I was a bit late actually because I was having a bit, no, a lot late. I was having a meeting with one of my PhD supervisors, and we were discussing the Nobel Prize, Nobel, 
eh, Nobel Prize in Economic Science, Elinor Ostrom. So for those who are not familiarized with the work of Ostrom, she speaks of governance of the commons. And she says that commons, okay, so commons are these places like the ocean, by the way, and that's why it's related to seasteading. Uh, commons are these places where you cannot really limit the access, like the ocean. People can pass, people can extract the resources. And so it's really hard to make them exclusive. And also, the individual use of these resources can lead to what has been denominated as tragedy of the commons, which means the use of the good led by individual uh, interest goes in detriment of, of the health of the whole ecosystem. So actually, Ostrom uh, has a really interesting book called Neither Market Nor State. And there she legitimizes what we are doing with the Floating Island Project and other cases of seasteading. She didn't know, but she didn't. Because she says that whenever it comes to managing problems of the common, the best way of governing them are with systems like similar to what Oliver Porter has. Not the state and not a market, but somewhere in between that is self-governed. Wow, you should interview her for a podcast. I think she's... I think she's... I don't remember if she... She died, I should know this. She died? Is this, a, is this an old book or is this a new book? No, 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 wait. So her book was 1991 and I don't have... Let's see if she's alive or dead, I guess I should know. So Eleanor Ostrom, um, da -da -da -da, what do you think, Joe? Yeah, she would be awesome. Yeah, she died in 2012. Oh, darn. Oh, sugar, we cannot have her. Yeah, it would be so cool. Mm? Now I have to read the book. We writers hate reading books. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so amazing. She has like 15 texts that just say seasteading. Well, they don't say it, but they explain why seasteading simply just makes sense from every single point of view you can think of, and both environmental, economic, and also uh, political, which, by the way, are the three also chapters, like the chapter division of your book. And also my PhD thesis. Hi, find me. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, those three aspects are so important. And I think that if we don't take them into account, whatever it is that we are doing, things will never thrive. But I see that in seasteading and in the Floating Island project, we are. Governance, yeah. economics, and the environment. Something I've, I've learned from seasteading is that you can count on innovators to find you if you provide them any sort of forum where they can solve problems. Yes. Because it sounds, seasteading sounds intimidating. How do you build a completely new society from the water up, including the rules and the laws and the services? Well, nobody can. But people can. So people come to you with, I have an idea for how I could do an algae farm or whatever. They they're, they're come out of the woodwork for their chance to do their new thing. 
So I guess you must have received so many emails by now of people wanting to be part of seasteading. What sort of um, proposals have you received? I want to do this on the sister. I have the perfect technology for what? What had? Well, what sort of things have you received? If I were to just try to think about what we've received in the last week, it would ex it exceeds my ability to remember it all. Wow. So, so that's an example of how the global brain is so much smarter than the individual brain yes. and the belief that some smart person designs your society for you is a sort of secular creationism. What actually yeah. happens is it, is it emerges from lots of people having their idea and then they meet other people with similar ideas they can maybe connect to and then they find a way to work it out and it emerges over time. So people come to us with a wave generation technologies. Yes. And the, 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 the struggle is that everyone who sees seasteading sees how it serves what they want to do, and they think the yes. seasteader is an expert in the thing they want to do. Yes, <laughs> so I understand. Think, the engineers oh. are like, obviously all seasteading is is an engineering problem, and you must be an engineer, so let me describe for you my complex equations. I see. Right. I and the legal people come. It's just a legal problem. So we do, if you can if you can set up a C zone, here's my constitution, or here's my, you know, whatever. Uh, yeah. So um, the the entrepreneurial role is to connect these experts to each other, and uh, get out of this situation where someone like me is a bottleneck between all the experts, because I'm not qualified to assess. Uh, all this stuff. We need the Blue Frontiers um, movement to become self-organized in, in a way it, it's slowly becoming now. Yeah. It, we have yes. different working groups and all this, all working on their different things and allowing the way this is going to work to emerge. Well, right now Blue Frontiers is working on expanding the number of volunteers it has and it's designing how can we precisely how to how how to be able to cope with what you've just said with all the number of applications and emails that we receive every day yes to become more global more, yeah global that we have local chapters and local working groups and self organize and and do meetups all this is going to be part of the growth of the seasteading movement in the coming months yes and what I've learned um, being involved with a nonprofit, which I've never been involved with before, nonprofits rely on donations. We don't have that much money. How do you get people to do things? Well, you don't pay them in money, you pay them in meaning. And people will work harder for meaning and to belong than they ever will for payment. That is so true. Yeah, that is very true. And so, you know, just this. Friday, a young man, you know, you remember I had to leave French Polynesia really early to race back and give a speech at, in Silicon Valley. Well, there was a young man in that audience um, who loved the vision. Uh, he's a Stanford student, and he, and, and I'm an old man who's not very good with technical computer things. I grew up in the days before computers, so there's basic things that young people find easy that I can't do. Uh, so he offered to sort of be my personal assistant. Oh, cool. Uh -huh. uh, once a week. And I, I met him for the first time since I saw him at the talk on Friday. And he swooped yes. into my life 
and got <laughs> so much done, uh, worked so hard and was so eager and ran errands and fixed things on my computer and set things up and researched for me. And he got more done in a day than I've ever gotten from someone I've hired. <laughs> and I was so grateful because some of these things I struggle with and I wanted to cry. And at the end, I'm turning to him to thank him because he wanted to stay and keep working and I'm trying to send him away. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm getting ready to say thank you. And he says to me, thank you so much. This is totally coinciding with what I'm passionate about. He's thanking me. <laughs> I get that. I completely understand him. Yes. And, and it happened with, with Caleb Sturge. Like he did all this economic work for us, Caleb. Um, Caleb Sturgis and I finally saw him at the Startup Society Summit and I beelined my way to go thank him for all he's done and before I could get words out he's like I just want to thank you I think this is a great thing I feel fulfilled doing my work it's like wow it's like people that's another thing I learned at Burning Man people the deepest human need is to belong to something larger than yourself that you find meaningful no which, yeah, you don't need to pay me for what I'm doing, actually. <laughs> it's so, I completely understand. And I, I was a volunteer, actually, of Blue Frontiers for yes. months, for like seven. And it was, I think, taking more time than my PhD. I, uh, at some point when I attended the most meetings I was attending nine meetings per week and I did it with the passion that the subject has and it's just amazing it's, it, it's been amazing to witness because you never not have energy yeah well coffee helps a lot <laughs> it's, it's really inspiring to see and of, of course just recently <laughs> you know, you put every aspect of yourself, you know, publicly online on behalf of the project. I mean, your your personal reputation, your 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 face, <laughs> your 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 job, and your um, scholarship. Um, that's some serious courage that comes from a commitment to something that you know you don't you don't get from you you can't pay somebody to do that. <laughs> a, a person has to believe. That, yeah. it, that it matters. I I kind of understand what you are saying, but it's it it it, it just seemed like the most natural thing to do. Like I I I do believe a hundred percent in sistering. It's not believe, I just know it. <laughs> yeah, I I would do it over and over again. I don't mind. Yeah, yeah. You, you, and you've demonstrated it with your joy. And it's, it's, uh, I'm, I, don't, I don't want to embarrass you too much, but I'm, I'm just very, very oh, no, no, grateful I don't you've gotten to know involved. Oh. <laughs> oh, I'm glad, I'm glad, yeah, I don't mind. It's, it's honestly, it, I think about seasteading probably all the time I'm awake because that's all I do. So if I'm not working on the PhD, which is our the Floating Island project, then I'm doing something related to Blue Frontier. So it's most of what I do when I'm awake. And I get a lot questions about uh, like 
and you have something else to do, then you get bored. And I think of that that's a very unfair thing to ask because let's say I was a musician. So if I spent all day playing the guitar, people would get it more uh, because it's some, yeah, because it's not an intellectual passion. I don't know how to how to explain this, but people tend to get more the fact that musicians all they do all day is playing music than simply being really stimulated mentally by a concept or a subject. Right. And feeling like you can contribute to making it happen. Yeah, exactly. That is the best part, definitely. Yeah. You must yeah. know that. Yeah. And, uh, and Mark Collins is the same way. He, if he's awake for a minute, he's doing something with regard to the Blue Frontiers community and the project. Um, and uh, I have the same thing. I mean, it, 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 I think I struggle with exhaustion sometimes, but it's the same thing. It's you can't, uh, there's so much to do and there's so much possibility that yes. uh, it, it's consuming. Yes, consuming in a good way. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's meaningful. Exactly. Uh, and, and frankly, I don't think I had that um, until I discovered this. Uh, writing books about things that are interesting and um, having a successful personal life with good friends and, 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 a, and a good wife and nice dogs. That's one, <laughs> that's one kind of thing. But, but if you move up that uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which I think is semi-mythical, you do, it takes away all these other needs and you realize what you want is to participate in something that's more important than you. But you have to believe that it's going to work and it's always very difficult. I've, I'm just fundamentally agnostic that any polit particular political movement is going to result in what people want. It's very sensitive. Very sensitive? I, yeah. What do you mean? It makes sense. Yeah, I completely agree with what you're saying. Yeah. But Simpson was the thing that made me say, this is going to work. Because it's not only a political movement, it has implications at so many levels, and every single one of those seems to make sense that there's just no other way around. Yeah, it's, it's like metapolitical. It's beneath, uh -huh. it's, it's providing you the platform to try exactly. your thing. Exactly. And it's not only about one specific way of solving problems. It's about opening the whole spectrum by increasing the degrees of freedom and just seeing what you can do. And, and what I tell people is, uh, you got a problem? What is, what is your problem with society? I'll, I'll tell you about an aquapreneur who's, who's <laughs> trying to solve it through seasteading. Uh -huh. That's true. The first thing that came to my mind was corruption. Yeah. Now tell me about that. How will it solve corruption? You tell me. Well, I, I, I wonder if you had a Colombian perspective or, or a South American perspective. Yeah, that's why the first thing that crossed my mind was corruption. So there is, well, corruption and concentration of power. How does seasteading solve that? Okay, many ways. One of them is that the fluidity of the medium and the detachable of the settlement means that 
you don't need to be subjected to the authority of a corrupt government just because you are forced to be there because passport or economic means you can simply if your if your house floats you can move if you can move it you can go to a different type of settlement where the market of governance has uh, made it provide better governance services so when it comes to seasteading and corruption the fact that there is not only one government established but many multiple ones that you can just gravitate around until you find the one you prefer means that there is an incentive to do things better which corrupt governments don't have because everything is just previously established and also decisions are made in a black box in traditional governments and I see insisting because it's very high tech and it's starting at this point I see that many of the decision-making will take place in a more transparent way. Right. And transparency decreases the possibilities of corruption. And like we're, we're both interested in the decentralization of power yes. among humans, right? Yes. That's, yes. That's, I think that's the startup societies movement. And, and th this comes from a, a philosophy. I mean, I, I think human nature exists. I learned that writing um, evolutionary psychology books. Uh -huh. So we are, um, our moral instincts evolved, and the question becomes, why are we so cooperative in so many ways, providing so much prosperity for so many people, and why are we so violent in other situations? Why, to, to, to bring it down to a microcosm, why was my old boss such a jerk in some situations, <laughs> and so um, serviceable to strangers in other situations. Yes. And I think it's fundamentally that we have a, a hierarchy of things we love. We love ourselves and our family first. Maybe we'll love our allies next. And s strangers are way out there. So w what would cause me to bring a lot of services to strangers? If, if you put my fundamental human nature in a situation where I have great political power over you, um, I will always choose my family first. I will always pay back my allies. And I will always see you as a, maybe I do kind of like you, but you're basically a resource I can use to exactly. feed my family and my children. Exactly. Which is what tends to happen when it, it comes to having a government. Right. Yeah, exactly. But if I have to persuade you to pay me for governance rules, suddenly my boss is turning into the nice guy where the way I engage my selfishness and my interest in serving my family is to provide services to strangers. Yes. And that emerges from a decentralized marketplace in which my self-centered nature can integrate with my desire to make the world a better place and have services with strangers. Exactly. Exactly. I, you know, I ordered food last night for my wife. A, wo a woman rang my doorbell. I opened the door. She smiled at me. I wasn't afraid of her. She handed me food. She said, have a nice evening. And I said, you have a nice evening too. And we smiled at each other. <laughs> thank you, thank you. And she went away. 
why would this stranger come to my house and give me food? And the both of us have this little moment of mutual goodwill between two people that will never see each other again. That is remarkable. Um, you know, it wasn't long ago when people of different tribes had a harder time doing that. Uh-huh. Yeah, and that's why they invented fake money with associated value. To yes. simplify transaction costs, but they end up messing it up really bigly. Well, uh, they don't because people believe in the value of money, so... But all we need is to not have a monopoly over the provision of money. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Which goes very in line with seasteading. Yes. You know, it's, you know, having a monopoly over the provision of money is a form of governance. It has a huge upstream, it has a huge effect on everything that emerges from it. It gives you a tremendous amount of power of, if you have that power. And, yes. um, and lo and behold, it ends up being corrupted. There we go again, yeah. human nature. <laughs> but, but, but money, uh -huh. money is a, uh, it's an emergent phenomenon that emerges among any people that trade. I think of it as simply the thing most easily traded for other Great. things. Yeah. And then, you know, if gold is too heavy, it becomes pieces of paper. And then a yeah. state comes in and claims yeah. control of the pieces of paper and illegalizes other ways of paying. And there yeah. you have it. Now you have a monopoly over that provision. But again, money, just like everything else, can evolve in a decentralized way and emerge naturally. And it is now. Yes, it is. Yeah. And I'm sure the sister will see its bit of it. Yes. Of the market of decentralization of money. You know, uh, Randy and I used to complain that when we went to uh, Randy Hankin, Seasteader and co-founder of Blue Frontiers, an original conceiver of the floating island strategy. Um, he, uh, we used to complain that when we go to conferences to talk about floating societies, everyone thought we were crazy everywhere we went, you know, four years ago. Unless we went to the Bitcoin conference. <laughs> we, all of a sudden we were popular among the nerds they were like oh you're the c student yeah. guys we love you so the and that's why randy got surprised a few months ago when he went to a legal conference to talk about c setting to pitch blue frontiers and the coming ico and people were not familiarized with it because it was a crowd of lawyers <laughs> yes <laughs> So he probably had a tough time. You know, he was probably selling a strange idea. Yeah. At a at a Bitcoin conference, people have people are already familiar with the idea and they already love it and they want to do their yeah. cryptocurrency on a seastead. Yeah, and they can't wait. Yeah. Soon, soon, soon. Hopefully soon. Very soon. And the, the more people adopt these cryptocurrencies, the more stable they will become. And the more they can compete, the quicker we'll get to the ideal form of money for the 21st century. Yeah, people are scared, especially recently with the crash. But please tell your appeasing message to future cryptocurrency buyers. Uh, it's, it's all relative. One way to look at it is, oh my God, it crashed to half its value in a few months. Uh -huh. Another way to look at it is, well, this time a year ago, yeah, it was one quarter of its value. So it's gone up four times in one year. Exactly. 
Exactly. And that's not to say Bitcoin will be the dominant cryptocurrency someday. I mean, maybe others will outperform it. Maybe it'll go to zero. Yeah. Maybe we'll switch to another. Um, but it's it, it decentralizes the provision of money and creates a marketplace where the best money serves the people who need it most. And it's only complicated now because it's in the early days. Exactly. Yeah, it's just starting like everything. It was like a decade ago, people were saying, I'm not going to use my credit card online i'm not typing my credit card oh yeah actually yes i've heard that yeah well, i'm not gonna put yeah 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 oh 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 no even with cameras i'm not gonna let you take a picture of me because you're gonna take my soul away i know someone who didn't this was when i was a girl and a uh, camera still had those films those uh and it had yeah. to. So, yeah, she didn't uh, let me take pictures of her because I was going to take her soul away. Yes. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it, again, it's a, even that seems to emerge from human nature because that reaction has emerged in multiple uh, pre industrial places around the world where it's so weird that you flash a light and then the person has an image of you on a piece of paper. <laughs> yeah, if you, you think about it. took away from me, yeah. It's weird, the concept. It's like a radiography. You can see through me, what? Yeah. But it's possible. I mean, yeah, now we just take each other's privacy away. Yeah, like I'm recording this conversation. Yes, and we've all just given ourselves over to it. That was another big objection decade well, and a well, half ago, which is well, if you allow, I don't want all my private stuff to be on the internet where anyone can get access to it, my life will be ruined. But yeah. Then a, a generation of young people didn't care and just allowed that to happen and the world didn't come to an end. Though yeah. it, there's all sorts of terrible challenges yeah. we're facing. But... <laughs> yeah, it's not going to be the end of the world. We are just starting. Yes, and then un other entrepreneurs will swoop in and try to innovate and find ways of protecting people against humiliation and preserving privacy. And there's all sorts of innovative people working on those problems right now. And they are huge problems because on one side you can say, okay, I can give away a bit of my privacy as long as that brings me more safety. On the other side, you say, okay, if I give a bit of my privacy to get more safety, then I am becoming more surveilled. So there are really interesting dilemmas there between to which extent you share, what are the benefits? Which platform you share on? Yeah. How private are the different platforms? Yeah, exactly. Should I buy these contact lenses with this type of augmented reality or these others? <laughs> this one have more targeted advertisements while these ones sell my data to I don't know who. It's going to be so interesting. Yes. Yes. It's going to be... I want uh, governance to be like ice cream. Uh, I don't... <laughs> I don't just have chocolate and vanilla, and that's all I can imagine is possible. And then I have to fight with all the ice cream buyers every four years, and we vote, and then everybody yeah. gets vanilla. No, I don't like that. That doesn't make any sense. 
That doesn't make any sense at all. And yet that's how we decide things in the most important industry in the world. Worse, people want that to be the ice cream making, the ice cream decision making system. Right. Ice cream, yeah. You should buy ice cream if it comes to flavors in Baskin Robbins because they have all they have all the flavors in the world. But if it comes to political decentralization, you should buy ice cream at Ben and Jerry's because yeah. do you know why? Do I know why I do? Yeah, yeah. Because it tastes good? <laughs> because there is a, a link between the son of one of the Ben and Jerry guy and Occupy Wall Street. Going back really? to our, Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yes, I don't tell anybody. So when I was uh, 19, I was present uh, when Ben uh, invented Heath Bar Crunch. And I might have been the first young man to try it. To try Ben and Jerry? To, to try Heath Bar Crunch. Wait, what is Heath Bar Crunch? It's, it's Heath Bars uh, crunched up in ice cream. Whoa, that sounds really nice. So that I, 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 he started in Boston. I was in Boston when I was about 19. I went to a little ice cream convention. Ben and Jerry's were just starting out. Oh. They had this crazy idea where they'd invent weird flavors. Uh -huh. And he was mixing Heath Bar Crunch in front of me. Wow. And, and he literally said, hey, kid, I just, I just invented this. Taste it and tell me what you think. Really? Yeah. Whoa. And what did you say? I, I literally tasted it and I said, Ben, this is the best ice cream I've ever tasted. Whoa. He was really happy and then he gave me a free <laughs> cup of it. And I, I wasn't lying. That remained my favorite flavor for probably a decade. Wow. Did you ever write to him or anything? No, and he, he wasn't. He was just a local Boston ice cream guy at that moment. Nice. Wow, I love it. I really love but, it. But imagine if I asked you, if I wanted to predict what kind of ice cream flavors you like. Oh, I said, okay. Natalie, um, so where do you fall on the ice cream spectrum? Are you left or right? I would say, Joe, that I like to have choices. <laughs> but there's only two choices. There's uh, those asshole vanilla people and us awesome chocolate people. Yeah, I'm sorry to tell you, Joe, but that's not really how things are. I know that that's how it seems, and I definitely know that that's how this thing called media portraits things but you can explore on your own other alternatives that actually make more sense because the world is not really vanilla or chocolate there's a huge spectrum oh okay and so on this so-called other flavors you speak of what what flavors would they be how would they taste hmm, they so delicious let's say that today what day is today monday 9.30 p.m., you are in the mood for candy, cotton candy, because Mondays at 9.30 p.m., you like cotton candy ice cream, so you can have cotton candy ice cream. But you don't agree with having cotton candy ice cream every day at every time. 
So for other aspects, for other moments of your life, then you want to have lemon sherbet ice cream. It, it's just about choice. You, you sound like an ice cream utopian. I mean, <laughs> and I'm already mad at you because you're not being loyal to we uh, chocolate people that we have to defeat these vanilla people. Otherwise, we'll get another four years of vanilla. <laughs> I am uh, sorry, Joe, but I'm too busy trying to create new flavors. I don't have time for that discussion. Right. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Just eat yours. I'll create mine. And, and of course, it's absurd that there would be such a thing as a, a line, and, and you can position yourself along this line, and then I can predict a long list of opinions that you must have by putting Thanks. you in that group. Like the diversity of social relationships is far more infinite than the number of potential um, ice cream flavors. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But yet we think if we just cho choose from among two choices, yeah. that'll, that'll carte blanche take care of all these other things. And that's the best possible world we can have is either chocolate or vanilla. And I just can't see outside what's possible. That doesn't if make any sense. You need smarter choices. Yeah. Also because you are not, your life has so many different dimensions that there is no single set of, yeah, and also you change, people change, so what you think is best now is not going to be the same that what you think 10 or 5 years from now, and it's, it's okay to have those diversities in your own thought, so there's, if you have them in your own life, there is no reason why yours are going to be the same as other 40 or 150 million people. Yes, it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's really ridiculous. That's the least you can say, ridiculous. That's a yes. compliment. And, and we already have townsteading. I mean, I've changed towns. Oh yeah, good point. Townsteading, yeah. And I weigh the pluses and minuses and... Um, you know, nobody says to me like, well, that's just because you're rich that you can afford to switch towns. You shouldn't be allowed to switch towns. You, you have to be forced to stay in this town. Um, so we allow choice at that level. It's very selfish. Yes. Yeah. And imagine if all these towns could move about and disassemble and reassemble elsewhere. We'd have rapid innovations. That would be so awesome. What type of system would you like to move in? Uh... I would, I would be inclined to incrementally choose uh, more voluntary and more uh, sustainable. Uh, I, I like the environmentally restorative angle of the Floating Island Project. I find that very seductive. Yes. Can you explain um, for those who don't know what it is about? Well, the Floating Island is, uh, everyone talks about sustainability, but I don't want to sustain the polluted world we have now. Yeah, I want to restore the ocean environment especially, which has been particularly abused. And that this is a, a possible through um, uh, Blue21's concept of uh, cyclical metabolism. Um, for, first of all, the floating islands are designed to allow coastal and island countries to adapt on their own organically to sea level change. So, you know, the island nations of the world, they didn't cause sea level change, but they're doing something about it. 
and they can exactly. solve it on themselves. Again, the idea that we just need the states of the world to all get together and properly tax businesses so they can control the thermostat of the planet based on their promises, which will then lower the height of the seas. This is superstitious thinking. But if it is indeed a problem, and it's a problem in different places, we can get your friends uh, at the apartment that you're staying at to build what they've already created, which is sustainable, solar-powered, floating platforms in shallow <laughs> waters that already recycle their own water and all that. So the technology yeah. already exists. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, as Kiri Boss slowly transitions into becoming a, a seamount, which is a high mountain just below the oceans, they can transition into being a floating country, island by island, as they lose their islands. Exactly, and they will, because the president of Kiribati is looking very, very closely at floating islands as land replacement mechanisms. Yes, and I wish the nations of the world would organize, uh, instead of trying to save the planet, let's save an island nation. Uh, let's start there, and we okay. could provide floating uh, Blue Frontiers platforms for Kiribati. I love that. I actually love that. It's tragic. Like, uh, they're going to move to New Zealand? That's just wrong. They're going to lose their giant uh, EEZ, uh, uh, their, their EEZ, their economic zone. So that's what it's... That's, that's, that's the possibility that they move to New Zealand? They're talking about relocating. Uh, and I think that I think the first choice is New Zealand, and I think this would be tragedy to lose to lose this culture and this magical place. Yes. Um, no, I think that we'll have the business enough in place by then. I think so. Yeah. Maybe some do go to New Zealand for sure, but I think what we are doing is going to make possible. Yes. Two of the biggest problems in the world are sea level change, floods, and the lack of startup innovation and governance. And, and Blue Frontiers has a business model to solve both problems immediately. Yeah. At the same time that it creates a very active market with very, very attractive economic profits for anybody who wants to innovate in Blue Tech. Yes. And just by nature of concentrating all these blue tech people in one place, just being there among those people, if you're interested in one of those technologies, will be good for your business. Yes. People really underestimate the value of being there, especially in this network-mediated era. But one of the things that still prevails is face-to-face interaction like being being there like right now for example i am in rotterdam visiting the architects of blue 21 who are part of blue frontiers and who are designing the floating island project and i go to their office every day to work and we have lunch every day and it definitely gives you a very, I forgot what I was going to say, a deeper understanding of 
all the matters. Okay, I know what, what I was going to say. So Blue 21 is located at a startup incubator. And it's one of the coolest places I've ever worked at because there is an OTEC company. There is a, yeah, there is an OTEC company. Uh, there is a company that does solar glass. So, yeah, yeah, and they are so beautiful. Let me see if I can show you a picture here. They have a company that has electric cars. They just simply have everything. In fact, we, we make the joke that everything the system could need could be taken from that, that startup incubator. And the way in which launch is arranged is uh, well, it launches a range in a way that everybody can sit next to each other and talk, and that generates collisions, and that generates uh, emerging spontaneous opportunities of, of collaboration. So going back to putting all these people together in the same place, putting all these people in the same place does have an added value. So you can, yeah, you can be... You can have a, a, an idea about, I don't know, a financial technology, but let's say that you happen to meet unassisted someone who is already working on developing one aspect of it. Definitely, you are going to either know more or become more into it or create your own business. I don't know, but there's a really huge value in putting all these really interesting people together in the same place. Yes, and... If you think about it, like our, our social emotions evolved to share meals and to, to, to look in people's faces and sit in the same room with them. So even if we would have a conflict with them, we're, we're getting all this other information going on that kind of lubricates how we decide things, which is so much different from getting an email or, or even a conversation like this, you know. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 it's really great to just sort of be in the same room with people and work together. And yeah. Is is the Ocheck company Blue Rise? Is that the name of it? I can ask. Okay, uh, uh, it's no biggie. But yeah, it's funny. Um, you, we could just float that incubator. Yeah. <laughs> uh huh. It's called Yes Delft. Yes stepped. Yes Delft. Delft, like the city that is near Rotterdam, and oh, yeah, Delft. Delft. Yeah. And yes, I don't remember what it stands for, but it's part of the Technical University of Delft. And have you been able to like see with your own eyes like the Netherlands facing high seas? Like, can you do you see it and feel it there? Or yeah, so I have a actually I went last Sunday with some of the members of Blue Frontiers to the Rotterdam Pavilion. So it's a floating pavilion and it's so beautiful. And when you are there, you don't really feel that you are floating. It's completely static. It doesn't, it doesn't move. Actually, Karina, one of the architects, said that once for some reason she was at a meeting at a high building from where you could see the pavilion and there was a storm and all the trees were moving and everything was moving and the pavilion was really static. So I went there and they had the most interesting material for walls. So it looked like some balloons, like the walls, the, the pavilion is round, so it's a dome, three domes. 
and they were curved, each one of them. So what they said was that the walls, in order to make it light, are filled with air. So it's like a floating greenhouse that is very resistant because of because they are like this. If you throw something, it will bounce. Boing. So, yeah. And it's this one is connected to the grid. Uh, so it's not solar. But yeah, it is connected to the grid. Yeah. The, the pavilion uses electricity from the grid. Yes, but oh, not the design of the floating island. Yeah. yeah. So um, this was ten years ago. The way you just described the cells and the walls, it's almost like are they designed to be like lenses that kind of focus light or something? Or not these ones, but the ones I saw at the startup incubator, the company. Yes. So they. I have a picture here actually, but you. <laughs> you might be able to see differences in color because in order to save the energy consumption of my phone, I have a very <laughs> a very red screen that saves energy. So let's see here. Maybe you can see, maybe you cannot see. So these are the... Can you see? Oh, yes, I can. Yeah, so it's glass and it's solar panels. So, but can you see through it? Yes, you can see through them. You can see, okay, let me make them bigger. You can see through them, so they are transparent, but, but they have these bubbles, so you won't be able to distinguish shapes very clearly because of this rugosity. But they are translucent. Yeah. Should we float the incubator? Yes, float the incubator. <laughs> and those will yes. those will evolve into being just like perfect windows. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Completely. Yeah. And then we will yeah. have light bulbs made of uh, bioluminescent uh, algae. Oh, I would love it. <laughs> Another another Dutch uh, Dutch people are working on that. Uh, really? Like uh, yes, bulbs with um, algae in it, so that if you hit the bulb, it jostles the algae and it glows a lantern of of green. That that must look so beautiful. Yes. Wow, because in the ocean it looks so beautiful. Yes, I mean. Uh, I'm going to have these in my in my spiral novel. These, <laughs> these emerging ocean-based technologies that are coming that we can't even imagine. Yeah. Uh, I think could uh, we're actually seeing them in our biomimicry group, uh, uh, led led by uh, Francois Briant. Yes. Um, you know he's working on imitating shark skin and to keep. Uh, you know, a mechanical way to keep uh, germs off and uh, basing the cooling mechanisms on termite mounds and all, all this sort of imitating nature sort of stuff. So I think we can create a comp completely new world that looks completely different if it, on, the, on the oceans. 
And I think that's when everyone will become fascinated by seasteading and the floating island project. The architectural possibilities are simply limited. You have a different uh, man. I'm not an expert. I'm not an architect. But what I've seen is that you have you have to think differently when you think floating than when you think on land. Firstly, you don't need foundations, for example, and that both limits and also gives space to all the things you can do. But you must know that because you are the one who wrote the book on seasteading. And I'm <laughs> looking here, for example, I have here this really cool... Uh, how to call yes. it? The trajectory? Yes. That was made by your hosts, by the way. The, My hosts? Yes, that was made by Bart... Um, Bart Ruffin and and on the based on the vision of Blue Twenty One. Yes, you couldn't have chosen a best architectural firm. It was another one of these things I couldn't when I when we discovered them I just couldn't believe that they actually existed. <laughs> it just seemed too do? good to be true. And they are working now on floating solar. Yes. Yeah. And um, Rutger de, Rutger de Graaf, have you met him? Mm, not yet, but it's his birthday today. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, today is his birthday, so I'm going to self-invite myself to his birthday party on Friday. Um, wow. Yeah. Say hi. I'm the present from I'm a present from Joe Quirk. He sent me. <laughs> yeah, you were the one who sent me. Yeah, and he's become a really key part of my PhD. Really? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, well, because he he speaks on governance, and as you said, when you send me to him, it's not it's 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 not common for an architect or an engineering perspective to speak also of governance. So both Rutger and also another Rutger who was working with him doing doing the research here in. In in Netherlands, they are both speaking about governance and what were the possibilities of floating infrastructure in Delta, especially. Yeah, all, all those Blue Twenty One guys—they're all multidisciplinary, and that's what's interesting about them, because they're they're thinking about governance and they conceived of seasteading without knowing that word. They they've independently come up with these ideas. And it's very practical for them because they're they're creating a, a new thing that doesn't where the laws for the land don't apply anymore. Because no. now we're floating and now we can move things around and how do we define this and don't we need new rules and, and that got them thinking about we, we, we need different regulations for floating things than we have for land things and what will happen when we move into international waters. Mm -hmm. How would that be governed? Wouldn't it be more governance than government? Wouldn't exactly. It be more, exactly. Yeah. Yes. And, and exactly. Rutger, Rutger articulated all that in his thesis many years ago. Yeah, so I'm really excited about meeting him. I yeah. haven't met him it's yet. Quite visionary. Yeah. Yes, I'm here with Barbara, Barbara Dalbosanon. So she is very interested in system dynamics and on, on just on environmental care also and on providing a whole ecosystem's perspective to the design of the floating island project. So instead of uh, simply 
looking at the ecosystem and putting the platform and then having a hierarchical relation of the platform or the system over the environment, she wants everything to be integrated and being yeah, conceived from a systems perspective where there is no hierarchy of the elements. Uh, it sounds like she is your Rutger because it sounds sort of like your scholarly work or your ideas, what you just described. Yeah. Yes, so I couldn't be in the in the best place, best project, best architect. Sometimes everything just feels as if it makes sense, and that sometimes that sometimes has become more often and often and often and often that I can't believe it, and it's amazing. Yeah, it is incredible how you 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 have a new idea, a new vision, and you feel alone. But with an ex enough exploration, you find other people that not yes. only have a similar vision, but are enhancing your own view and have already made progress exactly. on what you want. Exactly. And that's, that's what appears to be happening with the global seasteading movement. Yes, yes. And it's going to happen more and more and more because we are going to have uh, meetups and local chapters. So more local people. chapters? Yes. Local chapters. So more people are going to... No, the project. And you're also, yeah, I guess you're at ground zero for innovation to, for, for a C-level uh, rise. rise. Who, me? Yeah, I mean, the, the Netherlands are the most oh, the Netherlands. Rise. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and there's so many deltas here and so much water that it was very visionary for the government to say, hey, you know what? Why don't we treat water as if it was land? And the government, there are some cases, for example, where the government has built plots of, uh, sorry, sold plots of water. Yes. Yeah, I've seen that. I, I remember, I guess it was Rucker who first told me that. I was kind of blown away, like just sell plots of water. Uh-huh. That so makes sense. It yeah, it only makes sense if you're being flooded all the time and... <laughs> People have foundations on swamp, and then you can be exactly. more stable if you float. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I would definitely, I cannot wait to move. I don't think I'll have time to move on assisted in the next 10 years, and probably you also not, even if you haven't fully convinced your wife, because, yeah. Because you'll be working on building more and more and more, but I can't wait for all these political and engineering technologies to just be put in place there. As soon as we have a dog stead, if, if, I, if I can get dogs on the, on the, on the floating <laughs> island, then, I, then, I, then my wife will come. As soon as we have a cat stead, I'll go. <laughs> well, we're going to have to vote and argue with each other whether there's going to be only no. dogs around the cats. <laughs> oh, no, wait, it'll be seasteading. We don't have to do that. Yeah, no, you don't have to waste time. Sorry, contribute to democracy. Sorry, you don't have to do that. <laughs> you don't. I think uh, it's becoming a bit... Um, I have a lot of water flowing behind me. Oh, yeah? I don't know if you can hear there. I hear someone doing dishes. Yes! There was someone doing dishes. Joe, should I let you go? I suppose so. I have to, uh, I have to go make a video now.
You have to make a video. A video of what? Uh, I'm embarrassed to say it's actually a, a, a video about myself. Oh, okay. But, uh, but I just completed uh, one about Lele Lalalu. Oh, I love it. Yeah, he gives a great interview at the Tahiti conference, and so we made a little video out of that. I loved it. Both the talk and the video. Yeah, I did. Wow, he's such a visionary. Yeah. And so, uh, he's so charismatic. Like, you just, I just have to smile when he's talking. He's just very <laughs> erudite and, 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 and charming and interesting and bring, brings his, you know, islander perspective to things. It's just, yeah. it's really good. Oh, I love it. So your video is about you. Yes. Yeah, so there's also interviews with me there that are all chopped up in different pieces, and we're thinking oh. of we're thinking of putting them together in one little video. Okay. And, and then I have great shots of Karina um, giving a short interview, and a great one of Igor, and a great one of Mark. Oh, nice. Uh, so I'd like nice. to put those together too. Nice. I'm looking forward to it because the Lele one was just perfect. I know the, the three mini documentaries, they were just beautiful. I'm glad you like it. I love them. Good. I'm glad you like it. It's painful because all those people had so many good things to say, including you. Uh, and then we just, my, we just had to take the, 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 since we didn't want it to be too long, we had to be short, we just had to take the best little moments and splice them together. But everyone should go to the actual talks. Watch your talk. Watch Pauline's talk. So in those videos, it links to the to the talk, so you can see the whole talks of each of those people, if you like. Yes, and they are on the website and also on the YouTube channels of both Blue Frontiers and the Sistering Institute. Yes. Yay! You can always go deeper if you want. Yeah, exactly. Like the media does. So I hope everybody listening uh, joins <laughs> our community and becomes enthusiastic as the Sea Evangelist and the Sea Evangelists. Yay! Well, I'm sure they will, though. It's been very nice seeing your smiling face. It's been very nice to be talking to you. Um, I hope we can chat again. Yes. It was nice to see Barbara in the background there. And uh, please... Oh. Wish Rutger a happy birthday. <laughs> I will. Say, I will wish him a happy birthday. And say hi to Karina and Bart. I will. I will. I'll give them a big hug from your butt. Yes, tell them I'm jealous of you for not being there. Oh, <laughs> well, oh. I'll give them a big hug. Maybe that can right, compensate. Cool. Yeah, give them a big hug for me. Okay. Well, Joe, thank you very much, and I hope you have a very nice day. Yes, and we'll, yeah. we'll talk again soon. It's a beautiful day here in California. So it's very nice talking to you. Meow. Oh, okay. <laughs> bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us on the Blue Frontiers podcast. To learn more about our work and find out how you can support the project, visit blue-frontiers.com or visit our social channels. You can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Blue Frontiers, or shoot us a note via our website. If you learned something and enjoyed the show, 
tell a friend, or leave us a positive review on iTunes, or wherever you're listening. Don't forget to subscribe to our show, and remember to join us for the next episode. See you next time. Remember that you can also watch the video of this podcast looking for Blue Frontiers podcast on YouTube.